I invite children to be dismissed to junior church at this point. I guess I should turn my mic on now. These technical issues. So children may head out to junior church. And we're going to go to Romans 12 here in just a moment. Romans chapter 12 here in just a moment. So I invite you to turn there. A few weeks ago, I referenced... I'm going to put my phone in my pocket. I'm only watching my phone Sunday mornings because I pull up the Facebook live stream... And, you know, the live stream is a blessing and, and it's a curse because it gives one more thing to think about on Sunday mornings is, you know, making sure it's working. And praise God, most of the time it does work. And so anyways, Romans 12, and it's not great. My Bible just opened right to Romans 12. So, I, you know, a few weeks ago I mentioned this BBC show that Meg and I were watching called Victoria. Is on BBC. We like BBC shows. I'm hoping I can end up talking like them eventually. You know, say phrases like "give it a go" and things like that. You know, and they have a higher vocabulary over there. They 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 actually do. Actually, the British journalists actually target 11th and 12th uh, 12th grade reading level, whereas Americans uh, newspapers target a sixth grade reading level. Anyways, we like those BBC shows. And so there's a new show we've been watching called Paul Dark. P O L. D-A-R-K, Paul Dark, and it's been out about four or five seasons, and it takes place after the Revolutionary War, where somebody who fought for the British, uh, for the crown, came back to England and went to Cornwall, which is in the southern tip of England. It's got the Atlantic Ocean on the south and the west of Cornwall, actually, and he comes back there, and his parents are now dead, and his father's estate has crumble has has kind of fallen apart really that a mining business that wasn't that successful and it the show is about him part of the upper class aristocracy trying to build it up again and why am i sharing that because i think during sunday school god gave me an interesting connection to the gospel See, you know, the British during that time period had this aristocracy where people, if they had a name and if they had royalty, they had influence just by that name. And so Ross Poldark, the main character, had that. You know, he had that name. But he cared about the common people. He cared about his workers. And he eventually hires this young woman to be a kitchen maid, a kitchen servant. And eventually it made great waves in the aristocratic uh, aristocracy when he married her because if you were high upper class if you were a person of influence you did not marry a common miner's daughter and anytime somebody wanted we're in the fourth season now anytime somebody wanted to get back at him or give an insult they would say things like just go home to your kitchen maid you know and things like that and in fact a few weeks ago when i was reading the uh, finishing the book on Patrick Henry, a biography of him, you know, it pointed out part of the American Revolution was actually going against the aristocracy of England. America was built on a meritocracy, that people had merit based off of what they did, what they achieved. It was different. Now, again, why do I share all this? Ross Poldark, the main character, had influence. He was upper class, and he took as a bride... A common woman. You know, the gospel teaches that God saved us, not based off of our merit, not based off of our aristocracy or anything else. God saves us based on his grace, based on his mercy. It's totally about him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so no one can boast. You know, it's 
Kind of. Actually, if you read through the minor prophets in the Old Testament, we see that same idea. God says repeatedly that he called Abraham out of Ur, not because Abraham was greater than the others, not because of anything he did. It is all based on God's grace and God's mercy. The prophets, especially Ezekiel around chapter 16, 17, 18, describes God as a husband taking a bride. And the bride had no merit of her own. The bride was not upper class. And who was the bride? Israel. And God brought in Israel and loved Israel and saved Israel based off his grace, based off his mercy. And that's the connection that I wanted to share as we begin. Now, why would I share all that? Uh, Romans chapters 1 through 11 were all about rich theology, rich doctrine. They were all about salvation and, and, and God saving us by grace and by mercy. And in Romans 12, he pivots and he switches to practical matters of the faith. And as we look at Romans 12, it seems to be that he's saying you can't have the practical matters of the faith without first and foremost having a transformed life by God. God transforms us and then we can live differently. J.D. Greer shares this illustration. He said, I did a little reading up on caterpillars recently and learned some fascinating things about their transformation process. Now, we all know, right? Caterpillars turn into what? Butterflies. Butterflies. Great. Caterpillars turn into butterflies. So they have this transformation process, right? And, and Greer says, when the caterpillar is in its cocoon, it isn't just rearranging pieces on its body. It's not in there reading manuals about flight or working out, right? You would think you'd be in there, you know, reading manuals of flight and working out, trying to figure out how to fly, how to become a butterfly. It's not doing that, okay? It actually releases enzymes that turn its body into a little soup. Those cells rearrange into a new creation with wings, antennae, eyes, and all the rest. The cells are rearranging by the enzymes while the caterpillar is in the cocoon. That is awesome, right? Don't we serve an awesome God who can do that? After a few weeks, though, the caterpillar nibbles a hole in the cocoon and out pops a butterfly. And then without any classes or any coaching or coercion, it flies. The apostle Paul may or may not have known all this about butterflies, but he did recognize that something similar happens to the believer. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed means changed from within. Having your spiritual cells rearranged. The word in Greek for transformed is metamorpho. Is where we get our word metamorphosis. You know, the word we use to describe what happens to a caterpillar when it sews itself up in a cocoon and emerges as a butterfly. When God transforms us from within, he releases gospel enzymes into our heart that restructure it so that spiritual flight becomes second nature. Now, I'm always amazed at that. I mean, can the same God who somehow taught a caterpillar how to sew itself up into a cocoon and rearranges everything to make it be able to fly, can that same God, for the Christian, when we accept the, Him as Lord and Savior, we're baptized with the Holy Spirit, 
Can that same God change us from within? Yes. Amen? amen. Seems like amen is the church word for yes as well. Um, you know, he's transforming us. So my theme today is do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by renewing your mind. Transformed by renewing your mind is internal. And out of that, we live different lives than those of the world. And we're going to walk right through most of Romans chapter 12 today, looking at these ethical principles. You know, God changes us, okay? So do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the Lord, verses 1 through 2. In this chapter, Paul is transitioning from all the rich doctrine... Now to how we are to live. Because of all this rich doctrine, we live differently. Because of all this rich doctrine of Romans chapters 1 through 11, we live differently. So in Romans chapters 1 through 11, Romans chapter 1, the Gentiles need Christ. Romans chapter 2, the Jewish people, Israel needs Christ. Romans chapter 3, they all need Christ. and, And he goes on throughout. And how did Paul end Romans chapter 11? He ended all this rich doctrine with this great and awesome doxology about how awesome God is that we just can't understand. And now, because of that rich doctrine, we have imperatives. And that means do's. This is how we are to live. Let's look at verse one and, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's all verse 1. As Christians, we are to present our bodies, our lives, as a living sacrifice to God. We willingly uh, just crawl onto the altar metaphorically, and we are living sacrifices to God. And Paul says that is our spiritual act of worship. And then verse 2. Do not, that's a command, do not, a command, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Once we are transformed from within, and it's a renewing of our mind, then we can test. That's what the verse is saying. We can test. We can discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. We cannot test God's will if we are not transformed by God. We cannot test God's will if we are conformed to the world. That's what this is saying. Then we look at verses 3 through 8, thinking of the body of Christ. There is so much more I could say about verses 1 and 2. But I've preached on that uh, before, and I had more, but for the sake of time, we're going to move on. I had more in my original manuscript. I cut off like an hour of the sermon, so you can thank me later. Thinking of the body of Christ. Let's look at verses 3 through 8. Paul is about to write about being the body of Christ. However, I find it interesting that he begins this section the way he did. It is as if he was saying, you cannot, this is important. It is as if he is saying, you cannot live the way a Christian is to live unless you are transformed by Christ. Actually, I believe he is saying exactly that. You cannot live the way a Christian is to live unless you are transformed by Christ. You may be wondering about yourself or about many others. Why can't I, why can't they, why can't people live the way a Christian is to live? It's because it starts with spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines to allow us to be transformed by Christ. Hopefully, the Holy Spirit is continually showing you things that you need to change. Some of those are things that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. Some of those are attitudes that you have that you shouldn't have. Some of those are thoughts that you have that you shouldn't have. Sometimes he might be showing you things that you need to do that you're not doing. 
Maybe volunteer at the rescue mission. Help with the children's ministry. Help at the pregnancy help center. Um, hopefully, if you're, not, if you're not having time in God's word, that's a, the that's a first and most important thing. You know, the Holy Spirit will always be showing us things to change because he is preparing us for heaven. God is preparing us for heaven. Someday we will reign with him in heaven. That's what 2 Timothy chapter 2 says. Or it might be 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll check later. You know, he is preparing us to reign with him. If you enter God's word and you read chapter upon chapter upon chapter, day after day after day, and you don't th- see anything that you need to change or think about, you need to pray about your heart. Because God's word, inspired by God, has many different things. Sometimes it's a heart change and we overlook it. Our anger, our frustration, our rage, that's something that shouldn't be. That is not right. If we're having unholy thoughts, those things need to change. As we get into Romans chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, we're going to see things about heart change, about Christians' behavior, about respecting one another, loving one another. These are critical to the Christian witness. You cannot live the way a Christian is to live unless you are transformed by Christ. If you, are tra- if you are conformed to the world, you cannot live the way a Christian is to live. Further, you must be transformed. After you are transformed, the rest will follow. After you are transformed, the rest will follow. How are Christians right now living as Christians in most of the world through persecution? How are Christians in Afghanistan Claiming Christ as they have. I've read numerous articles where they've actually changed their national ID to reflect that they are Christian. Even though they know that means they have to be an underground church. How are they doing? How are they doing that? It's because they are being transformed by the Lord. See, in America, one of our problems today is many times in many churches, in many individuals, and you reflect this on your own heart, we want to be able to claim Christian, but we do not want to allow the Holy Spirit to transform us. We want to be able to claim to be Christian, but we are being conformed to the world and not transformed to Christ. And that's the opposite of what we need to be. So to live as a Christian, you need to be one. Romans chapters 1 through 11 are all about that, be one. You also must have the right doctrine, Romans chapters 1 through 11. You must have to have the right doctrine, or at least seeking the right doctrine, where you understand what it means to be a Christian. That's Romans chapters 1 through 11. You must be a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1. You must be a living sacrifice to the Lord, and you must be transformed, Romans 12, 2. Now it gets practical. Look at verse 3, Romans 12, 3. He says, for by the, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly, more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Isn't that interesting? Paul's saying, by the grace given to him, Paul has grace given to him, and now he's exhorting them and us, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. How are we doing with that? How is that working for us? Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Consider others more important than yourselves. Look upon the other, other's needs before your own. One thing I noticed about road rage, 
I'll reflect on myself here. I don't think I've had road rage, but I've had road frustration, okay? You know, you're trying to get somewhere, and you have to turn off the Christian radio because it just doesn't mix with the thoughts you're having when somebody's driving slow in front of you or, or stops at the yellow light when they surely could have gone through. One thing I notice about that is I think we objectify the person in the car. That means we don't think of them as a human being. We, we, we see a car, so we objectify them. If we thought of them as a human being, maybe we'd realize that they just left the nursing home where their parent or grandparent just died. If we thought of them as a human being, we might realize the struggles they're going through. But we don't. We objectify them. That happens with pornography. Studies have uh, has been shown that if you turn an image upside down, you objectify that image, uh, the person, I mean. You don't think of them as a human being. And pornography automatically objectifies the woman. We know that is obvious. But, like, they know, based off psychological studies, the person viewing the pornography objectifies that woman and does not think of them as a human being. We as Christians must think of people as image bearers of God. That's part of the biblical worldview of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. They're image bearers of God. Every human being is created in the image of God. And because of that, they all deserve, we all observe, we all deserve the utmost respect. And so Paul right here is getting practical. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But to think with sober judgment. Now that doesn't mean you haven't drank alcohol, maybe that too, but it means serious judgment. Serious judgment. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now I want to skip to verses 9 through 13. And this gets really practical with Christian living. Really practical for me, I'm sure for all of us. Um, Jesus is not mentioned in this section, but he is the backdrop. Look at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to that which is good. Now if we're honest with ourselves, have we kept that up? For the last week? Have, have all of our thoughts and attitudes been genuine love? Have we, have, have we abhorred what is evil for the last week? Are we holding fast to what is good? Paul is straightforward here. Love should be genuine. Think of genuine. This means it's not fake. It's not real. I mean, I mean, it's not fake. It is real. It is real. I had a professor of preaching, and he was leading students on a mission trip. He was from Asbury Theological Seminary. And he gets off. He goes into this little village area, and somebody says, Would you like a genuine imitation Rolex watch? Now, y'all know the, the problem is you can't have a genuine imitation watch, right? It's either genuine or it's not. Paul is saying right here, let love be genuine. He says, abhor what is evil. Abhor means a strong feeling of revulsion or aversion. Do we have a strong feeling of revulsion or aversion when we see evil, when we see sin, when it's on TV or when we see it around? Or do we only have a strong feeling of revulsion against the sins that we don't like? Hold fast to that which is good. Think of holding fast to something. We are holding fast. We are holding it tightly. You know, white knuckled. We do not want to let go. We cling to what is good. Cling means to glue something together. And that's what he tells us to do. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is the language of family. We are to love one another with the affection we would have for a brother or a sister. Verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. There are like three imperatives right there in a row. Three commands. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. 
To be slothful would mean to be lacking or to not care to be lazy. He's saying, don't be lacking in your zeal. Your zeal for the Lord, your zeal to be a Christian, your zeal to love one another. We must care about that. Be fervent in spirit. This means passionate intensity. Do we have a passionate intensity for the Lord? Verses 12 and 13. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. I don't know about you, but to me it seems like the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is like having a machine gun approach right here. Boom, 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 with all these commands, with all these, with all these rapid-fire imperatives. You know, he says, rejoice. Rejoice in what? He says the hope. Rejoice in the hope we have. We have hope in Christ. Jesus is our hope. Amen? Amen. I have to repeat that because sometimes I think as Christians, we think... A politician is our hope, or our job is our hope, or money, you know, which would go along with job, or a nice car, a nice house, or clothes, or, or even our family. I was listening to an historian interview, a historical interview last week, and I, um, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, and he was good friends with different theologians, different pastors a day, and one I think was John Ryle, and, and he wrote him a letter, this friend of his, this, he was like 20 years younger, this mentee, so to speak, and the guy was about to get married, and John Newton said... Be careful of your wife becoming an idol. We can make idols of good things. They're good things in their proper place. We have hope in Christ. He is our hope. Be patient. Be patient in what? Patient in tribulation. Because of the hope, we can have patience in tribulation. He says be constant in what? Prayer. We must keep praying for our hope. We must keep praying for our patience in tribulation. When we do this, we can't loathe our neighbors. It's hard to hate someone we're praying for, right? Next time we're angry with somebody, whether it's a car in front of you or whether it's a, a somebody on social media or a coworker, pray for them. Be constant in prayer. He says contribute, but contribute to what? The needs of the saints. He says show hospitality. And that may be one of the needs of the saints. Hospitality was critical back then, and it is more critical right now than we realize. There's a book by Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She came out of a militant lesbian lifestyle. She was a professor with tenure, she wrote works, uh, she wrote articles on, um, on condoning that lifestyle. When she became a Christian, she went full on for Jesus. And she says that being hospitable is critical to our witness, and I agree. Let's look at Christian unity, verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you, verse 14. Bless and do not curse them. This is a common statement throughout the New Testament. The New Testament says that we will be persecuted, and we are called to bless those who persecute us. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. As a body of Christ, we rejoice together, but we also weep together. This is about our unity. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Live in harmony. How many of you have been to an orchestra concert? Just a little bit. Anybody else? Orchestra concert. All of the instruments come together in harmony, right? They all come together. The violins with the violas, with the cellos, with the 
bass with the everything coming together. And if you add in a choir singing together, everything comes together in a harmony. And when it's not in harmony, it's obvious, right, to all. They have to come together in harmony. And that's what the church is supposed to do, come together in harmony. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. The world would say to repay evil with evil, right? They would say that, but not us. We are to repay evil with good. Martin Luther King Jr. said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Jesus did not take out vengeance on Judas. Now look at verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He says, if possible. It seems as though sometimes it's not possible. But when possible, as much as you can do, you can't be responsible for the other person, but you can be responsible for you. Live peaceably with all. Verse 19. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then verse 20 quotes Proverbs 25, 21, and 22. Verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Instead of taking vengeance, we do the opposite. We can do this because we know that God will take care of the sins committed against us. God will right every wrong. God will take care of everything in the end. We are called to feed our enemy. We are called to give water to our enemies. We as Christians are called to live differently. And this is the day and age when we can really shine. As Christians, it's time for the church to shine. We're, we, we cannot let evil overcome us. We have to overcome evil with good. When we live this passage, it assures us that we will not be overcome with evil. We cannot overcome evil with evil. But when we overcome evil with good, Christ wins. He wins either way. In John 16, it says that Jesus overcame the world. This chapter and the next several chapters are so practical. Remember as Christians, if you're a Christian... Everywhere you go, you are an ambassador for Christ. You represent Christ everywhere you go. And in this day and age, people are watching Christians more now than ever. And so it is so important that when we mess up, we are first to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And I think that speaks volumes. Humility is so important for the Christian. You know, in the first century, humility was not a good thing. Like, to the Greco-Roman world, they would not say, he's a real humble person as a compliment. Today, we do. Today, even the most secular person will talk about humility as a good thing. You know why they do that? Because Christianity conquered the world. It's time for us, and I'm not saying we haven't, we must continue to set the example there. There's a guy, Louis Amparini, a book written uh, called Unbroken. Any of you read that book, Unbroken? Any, anybody? Bill, Dan, a few others, Alda, John. It made, they made a movie called Unbroken. Angelina Jolie was behind it. It was about Louis Samperini and his faith. Louis Samperini was an Olympic runner in the 1936 Olympics held in Germany. He was famous for setting uh, records for running. He broke the five-minute mile, first one to do that. 
and he was expected to really win big in 1940. But as you all know what happened, World War II broke out. And so he enlists, and he becomes, he, he's uh, on B-24s. He's flying on B-24s, and he's shot down over the Pacific, and he spent 47 days at sea. If you read the book about it or watch the movie, you can see how they would catch birds and, like, kill them on their little raft and eat them that way to survive. Finally, they're rescued, and they're excited. They're happy to be rescued. And at first, they're fed, and they're given medical care. A few of them had died. But then they're taken to a Japanese POW camp with a guy nicknamed the Bird. His name was Mitsuhiro Watanabe, nicknamed the Bird. He was later included in General Douglas MacArthur's list of the 40 most wanted war criminals in Japan. And this guy abused Louis Zamperini for three years. Abused him, mistreated him. They found out he was an Olympic runner, so they used him for propaganda. Louis Samperini got out. He was rescued eventually. The war won. I hope you know that part. Well, the war ended. Americans won. The Allies won. And after he got out, his mission was to go back to the Olympics. But as he starts running, he realizes because of the abuse of this guy in the prisoner war camp, he could not run like that anymore. And he realized he had great, great, great PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so then his goal was to hunt down and kill the people who abused him in the war. He gets married, but eventually he's drinking every night to excess. He's getting drunk. He's abusing his wife. And then in 1949, Billy Graham's crusade comes to Los Angeles. It was the first big crusade that really kicked off all the others. They're meeting in a pop-up tent. And it was determined that it got so packed they were going to extend the crusade an extra four weeks. But Billy Graham's life was about prayer, and he said we got to pray about it because there was a storm off the coast, and they could not continue the crusade if the storm continued. But the storm dissipated, and they continued the crusade. Because they continued the crusade, guess what happened? Louis Amparini's wife went, and she was saved. She gave her life to Christ. His wife and a friend got Louis Amparini to go the next night. He goes and walks out during the invitation. And goes home and gets drunk. By the way, his wife and he were about to get divorced too. He's abusing her. The next day, they get him to come back. He starts to walk out during the invitation. I admire the boldness of Billy Graham. Billy Graham said, you cannot walk out now. You're allowed to walk out during the sermon, but not now during the gospel call. Louis Amperini Amperini was convicted. He goes forward. He accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the rest... Became history. He goes home. He pours all his alcohol down the drain. He, his, his, his relationship with his wife is reconciled. And you know, this doesn't always happen, but in this instance it did. His PTSD was healed by God. The nightmares ended. He went to Japanese POW camps. And he pronounced forgiveness on the Japanese People who abused him. He wrote letters to the guy Matsunabe Watanobe, the Japanese guy nicknamed the bird. He wrote letters. He wanted to meet him and pronounce forgiveness on him because of his faith in Christ. And he worked with youth for the rest of his life and also worked with the Billy Graham crusade. What's the point? Jesus transforms us to live differently. I think that's what this passage is saying. When we are conformed to the world, we can't live like a Christian is to live. But when we are not conformed to the world, when we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us as Christians, we can live differently. And God calls us 
to a different way of living. We begin it right here. And we're going to get very, very practical and very specific in the coming weeks. Remember, when you go to the restaurant, you're representing Christ. You're representing Christ. You're an ambassador to Christ, of Christ to that waiter and that waitress. Even if there's bad service, you can be different because of the Holy Spirit inside you. You can be different. You can be loving when people are mean to you or cruel to you or whatever. You can be different because of the Holy Spirit inside you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word that gives us these exhortations right now about how we are to live. Lord God, first and foremost, we are to be Christians. And so right now, I pray, Lord God, for anyone who's here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray the Holy Spirit would convict them today to commit their life to you as Lord and Savior, to confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior, to believe in you as the one and only Savior, and may they trust in you and commit to you. Lord God, may we all organize our affairs around you, organize our life around you, make you Lord of our life. And Lord God, we need the Holy Spirit to help us. That is clear from this text. We cannot live the way you call us to live without the Holy Spirit. And as Christians, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Blessing, guide, and support us. Encourage those who need encourage right now. In Jesus' name, amen.